to the Richard Nixon experience. We've had good reactions on the show last night. Yeah. You really must have. Who did yeah. you hear from? Who really liked Oh, the usual types. I mean, and actually the Rogers. And, did you hear from Kissinger? Yeah. Oh, of course, Rogers yeah. and Kissinger and, uh, and Elliot well, Richards really, and so forth. It was they, really all, they all thought he was a bastard. Well, uh, see, but this, that, is, but they, this they, has they, to be. They thought that helped. I said, well, basically the Smith program was so much better because mm-hmm. the questions are so much better. Mm-hmm. They said, no, but it wasn't as good from our standpoint because they said it's better when you have a bastard doing it. Well, you know, in a way, it's really true. I thought, um, first of all, well, Eddie just couldn't believe it. He said that that, that the questions were all antagonistic and that, and that he was rude. He interrupted you. And he did it about five different points, right in the middle of what you were saying. He kept interrupting well, and saying, but, but, but. But you just don't do it. I mean, you can ask an antagonistic well, question, trying. but then you have to wait. He was trying, and it'll be the worst question, the most blatant was where he said, well, you're, didn't you plan to end the war? And, oh, you mean... postpone the war and postpone... They're going to Moscow and postcode going to be political election year. I was awfully glad you brought out the thing about the bombing too in sixty eight. Right. That was that was that was a, that that was a, that was a good, good thing needle. to bring out. But my God, doesn't he realize that you've been working for two in two and a half years on these uh, things? That's what I told him. What do. does he think you do? You change your policy overnight? That's, I, that's what I told him. That's right, that's what you told him. Right. And that you and then I also like the thing, um you said about the future generations, you know, that you had to plan for them. And um, and also, then I also like the thing you said that um, peace is too important to postpone. I think those are your exact words. Yeah. That you, might be, that quote might you know, be my last. Yeah, that was, a, that was a very memorable quote. And, of course, your answer on the blacks was great, too, the black thing. <laughs> I don't know where he ever does when that. He says, I never heard why, that. When I said that the black was... I don't think you ever said that anyway. No, I, w- I only would, would have said it in the context of yeah. something else. Well, exactly. This is another thing Eddie brought up, because, you know, he's using his lawyer's mind. He said, you just don't bring something like that up out of the blue. You have to put it in context, con- context because right. otherwise... I just had a very, very dubious whole thing. He was an absolute bastard, though. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Well, I have never heard anyone worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't realize what he meant by that <clears throat> Ms. thing at the end. Yeah, and I hadn't read that book yeah. and but, but, yeah. uh, or the story, but, but I, the way, I, I, I slid to... off of it all right, though, because I... <laughs> that I just, was one of the things I marked out yeah, as being yeah, a good answer, yeah, and especially outstanding yeah. answer. I, 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 I just... I just the freedom of choice. I just said, well, I... You're old-fashioned. Oh, that's endearing. Yeah. But that you said that you said, but that was fine, that, that you do what people wanted, which and is that, good. And that also people... Uh, could have a freedom of choice. Yeah, that's that, right. That was that was how you concluded the answer, yeah. which was a lousy way to end the program on his part. You know, it was that's a right. stupid question to ask at the end. But I thought that that was a very good answer under difficult okay. circumstances. Well, anyway, I believe we are going to make progress in the economic and political fields. Thank you, Mr. President. Dan Rather with CBS News. President. President. Are you running for something? (laughs) No, sir, Mr. President, are you? President. Mr. President, I believe early.
Another of the great adversaries during the Watergate period that was so adamant about getting at President Nixon was Dan Rather. And I would just, Dan Rather's record speaks for itself. He was fired from CBS over, over um, a story on George W. Bush. And if you go to his Twitter feed, you see this outrageous um, line of just basically Democratic Party support that's been there uh, for long for for as long as he's been on Twitter, and so that it speaks for itself. But I, I'm going to let him speak to you now about his relationship with Richard Nixon. You become sort of a personality vis-a-vis uh, -vis Nixon. In other words, you and Nixon get matched in the media. Uh, I never intended that for that start? to happen. I never intended that to happen. How did that it did start? happen. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Some I have a clip somewhere of I think it was a Florida newspaper. It was not an uncommon thing. You know, uh, the reporter Nixon learns to hate or loves to hate or something. Right. It, you were, I never intended for that to happen. I was never comfortable with it happening, and I was concerned about it. And I talked to my bureau chief, Bill Small, uh, about it. And, you know, his basic thing is, listen, when you're on television every night and you're the chief White House correspondent and you're doing your job, a certain amount of this inevitable thing is seed it out as much as you can. Don't pay any attention to it. Just do your work. What I didn't know for a while is they were pressuring him, uh, a high-ranking Nixon administration official, take the bureau chief to lunch, they have a nice wine-filled lunch, and at some point he says, you know, we really like CBS, we really like you, but you have this hard-ass uh, rather over there, and, you know, that's a problem for you. To Bill Small's credit, and it's worth putting on the record, that he shielded me from that. I didn't even know about it for, the, for quite a while. And then when it became pretty apparent he put it on, he basically said, don't worry about it. I got your back. You do your job. And I think this happened with other reporters as well. Do you think there was any one particular incident that set them on fire? And, no. then, and then from then on, it was down? And I don't think it was a case of being set on fire. Uh -huh. I, I mean, I think they eventually became a flame, if you will. But I think it came slowly. Okay. Uh, look, I'd like to think that it was, they said to themselves, how do I say this? This guy's a little harder to convince than some. <laughs> Uh, and particularly television, uh -huh. a lot of a number of newspaper people who were really terrific, a hell of a lot better than I ever was. But I think number one, I was on regularly. Uh, CBS Evening News, White House correspondent was on regularly. So one, I was on regularly. Two, I'd been there a long time. I was the by the time they got there, I was already a pretty experienced White House television correspondent, and yes, maybe fairly well known. Then, you know, I liked, I tried my best for my banner to be, you know, I don't buy and I can't be bought. I'm here trying to be an honest broker of information. And their thing is that's not what they want right. and understandable. And the longer we went where they couldn't get they wanted, what they wanted out of me or CBS, it started as small, I think, small smoldering kind of spark, like a sort of campfire. Then it began to get hotter and hotter. Well, let's talk about the, one of the fires. Let's go to Houston in 1974. Well, talk but, about that famous well, incident. Well, in, in 1974, by 1974, 
responsibility for the widespread criminal conspiracy that was led to a degree out of the Oval Office itself, something that I never wanted to believe. In the beginning, I almost missed the story because not wanting to believe it, I just couldn't believe it was true. But by 1974, the the record, the evidence and testimony that the special prosecutor by that time, Leon Jaworski, remember President Nixon had kicked out two before that, but um, Leon Jaworski was beginning to compile and it was being made public. The contrast between the record of what had happened and what the president was saying happening, it was widening, it was a widening gap. And President Nixon, uh, began to feel whatever metaphor you want to use. The noose was tightening. The corner was growing smaller. The special prosecutor was beginning to close in. You know, first it was, well, the Watergate burglary was just a third-rate burglary. It didn't have anything to do with us. Then it was, well, some low campaign operatives. And they tossed over Jeb Magruder, thinking, well, that'll end there. Well, that didn't end. So then, it, well, it wasn't anything at the White House. It was John Mitchell and some other people outside. But by this time in 1974, the president was also already at the point where he'd had to, by the way, Vice President Spiro Agno had fallen aside well before that. Incredible that the Vice President of the United States was forced out uh, under very clouded circumstances. But anyway, by 1974, even Haldeman and Ehrlichman had been in this desperate effort to keep throwing things over and people over the side to save the president. It was all closing on him. and. Uh, the president and those who advised him uh, set up what I would call a showcase alleged news conference in Houston. And it was for the sole purpose of getting the press on stage. I almost didn't go because they were going to put us on a stage. They had a, it was in the big arena. They had papered the arena, that is to say, gotten supporters to come in. Not all of them were, but many of them were. And the whole idea was to, to use the press as props and use this to be a campaign rally for a a rally for President Nixon. And that was the atmosphere. There was talk in the press room of, should we even be a part of this? Because first time I'm up on the stage, up on seats, everybody knew it was a campaign rally. I said, well, listen, why should we, independent reporters, be a part of this? Have them hire reporters, which they'd done before, so for campaign commercials. But every, you know, it was not everybody felt that way. Some did, but we finally decided to go. Then we got there, and it was about what we ex expected. And I can't say each and every one of us, but many of us, including many of my competitors in in television, uh, people like uh, Tom Gerald of ABC, Tom Brokaw of NBC, we were determined uh, to have it be a real press conference rather than a pretend-to-be press conference. So a guy named Ray Miller with NBC in Houston, uh, a very well-known news director and a good one. KPRC. KPRC was uh, to be calling on the reporters. And in the early stages of the news conference, the news conference is sometimes a little slow to start. There had been some questions, but nobody was you know, repressing him. And uh, Ray Miller pointed at me, and by that time, uh, you know, I'd become known as 
well, become known for what it was. Somebody who tried to ask tough questions at news conferences. And there have been several other incidents before this in which the president had tried to use a little technique of just throwing off a little, little off balance, beginning, for example, San Clemente, California, some months before this. I said, Mr. President, I want to ask this question uh, respectfully but directly. And he said, well, that would be unusual. It's part of trying to keep you off balance, being what I talked about before, being on the offense all the time. So when Miller pointed to me, I thought he was pointing to somebody else. I guess truth to tell, I kind of hoped he was pointing to somebody else. But he said, you know, so I got up. And in the atmosphere, it's hard to recreate the atmosphere. But you have a president of the United States who is beginning to face very serious accusations in which members of his own party, people who supported him for a long time, were saying, we want to know the truth. And the truth, as we've already found it out, does not look good for this president. So what I want to do is get up and ask a question, a direct question. The question which I did get finally to ask was, the special prosecutor has this evidence and testimony that points in one direction, and you keep telling us that that's not true. How do we reconcile these th two things? But when I got up, there were, it was, uh, I think, fair to say, a mixture of booze and maybe yeah, there was some scattered applause. Houston is my hometown. I grew up there. was in radio there and television there for years. But I mean, this is before you could even ask the question. That's right. So I walked to the microphone. And uh, it's fair to say that they were mostly booze. It was mixed, but mostly booze. And I, you know, it didn't surprise me. As I say, it was kind of a stacked house in many ways. But my goal was to get up in front of the microphone, and as I always you know, you identify yourself, Mr. President Dan Rather, CBS News. Then he jumped in and said, well, are you running for something? Referring to the, the noise. Now, all of this happens in nanoseconds. I knew what it was. So, Chad, trying to just take my concentration off, make me a little uneasy. He tried it before, not only with me, but with others. Fair to say, a few times with me. And so I wanted to be respectful and I wanted to get the question. So I said, no, sir, Mr. President, are you? And then that got a little response from the crowd. And then I asked my question. But I, there are no complaints. I don't have any complaints. But nobody ever remembers the question, which was what I described. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile what you say with what the known record is becoming? Everybody remembers that little tete-a-tete. He hated us, and um, the press was, most of the press was not crazy about him. There was very little uh, relationship. We covered him, we, what he did, we put on the air, and he did some good things. Um, not as many as he might have, but he did some. Yeah, the devil is due. And um, he had a vice president whom uh, nobody liked, and for good reason. Spiro Agnew, who was a joke. And um, he didn't have any, he hated the press, and uh, the press is not entitled to hate anybody as a press. It's not our job to hate or love. Our job is to tell you what happened. And I think we did that with Nixon in reasonable fairness, though it was difficult. He, um, he tried to destroy me by um, planting false stories and in the newspapers, which never worked. Nixon, oh, Nixon. did. 
and uh, I've have, I have copies of some memos he wrote saying I was the worst. I don't know why he said it. I, I never liked him, but I didn't admire him. I had no respect for him. But I never attacked him on the air. I never said anything particularly ugly about him on the air. I quoted what he said. and um, Agnew was simply a cheap crook, taking money in brown envelopes in his office next door to the White House. And um, so it wasn't a very happy period in this city for the press or for anybody. My impressions were that he had a um, he had a good mind and a stunted personality. He could not deal with anyone, could not deal with people. When um, when somebody he didn't know some foreign dignitary or whatever, was coming to see him in the White House. He'd break into a sweat. He would call Henry Kissinger in before the visitor was allowed in and cross-examine Henry Kissinger for half an hour about this man coming in. What is, tell me about him. What's he for? What's he against? What's his background? Blah, 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 blah. And he would sit there with a yellow pad, legal pad, and write all these little details about the visitor who was waiting outside to come in to see him. And he was in a sweat. Why? Maybe you can tell me why. I don't know why. He was the President of the United States. But he was terrified of any little tin horn visitor who uh, came from anywhere in the world with a right to get in to see him for whatever reason. And he couldn't handle the social relationships at all. He wasn't any good at it. He was certainly not stupid. He was a very bright man. But, uh, as I say, socially stunted is the best description I can think of. Uh, the, the latter was David Brinkley, who was uh, had this week with Davis, David Brinkley in the Huntley-Brinkley Report uh, with NBC and then ABC. And, and you know, I, I listened to, to Dan Rather and David Brinkley, and they have a stunning lack of self-awareness. Um, here are two people who stand there and tell you we were fair, we tried decency. I really didn't want to be at odds with with President Nixon, or, or, or you know, we reported what he said, and I didn't attack him on the air, but I hated him. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is what they say, and I'll tell you something right there when they're they're just you just it just jumps off the uh, their interview, and so I I do that because I hope that people will look at this show, and I admit that I have an opinion that is pretty glaring. But I don't claim to be a journalist either. Uh, that this is what President Nixon had to deal with uh, during long before Watergate. The entire time as he struggled to get us out of Vietnam, and it was a factor that President Johnson and President Kennedy and President Eisenhower, even though he was a Republican, you know, he was this hero of World War II, didn't have to deal with. This was about President Nixon representing a Republican Party that had not been in power since 1932. And he was the guy that brought the Republican Party back. That's my opinion as to what this adversary relationship was about. And it was also about the fact that they never got over that Alger Hiss um, was busted by Nixon. Now, I think some of that is not because they didn't believe it. It's because they believed that, that, that Alger Hiss was innocent. It, because most of that information didn't come out until 1996. So there's the one thing that is their saving grace and in their defense. But there are journalists who dealt with Nixon very, very well because... You know, the press is the enemy is the name of this show, but uh, 
they're not all bad. And I, you know, I, I as an elected official, I had a great relationship with the press in my town. But uh, you know, when I hear stories like the one about Sergeant Shriver, let me tell you, I couldn't get into the Sun News newsroom uh, with two bottles of champagne uh, the night that you know if somebody that I didn't like it resigned. Uh, it wasn't going to happen, and so you don't, don't try to sell that one to anybody who the thinks is going to believe that Sergeant Shriver got in past security with bottles of champagne. I mean, that's just it's utterly ridiculous. So that should tell you what you're dealing with and what President Nixon was dealing with. But there were other reporters, some great reporters, some giant reporters, and I was going to let you listen to them now. Starting with Howard K. Smith, who did a, was one of three reporters who did a series of interviews with him that Dan Rather is the more famous one because Dan Rather was so... Uh, aggressively anti-Nixon in his interview. But here's Howard K. Smith now. you got to realize these guys all do stick together. So he has, he's very complimentary of Dan Rather. But here's Howard K. Smith, who was a really good reporter, who interviewed Nixon. Well, Nixon was feeling uh, bullish. He was doing well. So he had the presidents of the net three networks. Uh, just let me set the time. This was after re-election and before Watergate came into the news? Yes, before it was in his first term. And he said to the uh, presidents of the three networks, I'm going to give each of you an hour. You decide what you want to do with it. Now we start with ABC alphabetically. And uh, Goldenson said, we'll have Smith do it. And that's how I did it. The next one was Chancellor and the next one was Rather. Tell me about it. How did it go? It was all right. Were you pleased? Did you think it was successful, so to speak? Yeah, I think it was successful, but uh, uh, only all right. It somehow didn't catch fire. It was all right. Did he answer adequately? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, if there's any fault, it was well, mine. I was going to say, the other question is, did you question adequately? <laughs> I don't think I did. I don't know why. Well, facing a president of the United States is not an easy thing. You are not equals. No, you're not. And uh, you can't say some of the things, put some of the words into questions to a president that you would put to somebody else. You can't, but rather came closer to it than I did. He managed to get in some strong questions without being offensive, without seeming to be offensive. I think he offended Nixon, but that was easy to do. But you don't feel that you asked enough tough questions? The questions somehow did not catch fire. For example, the, one of the biggest things brewing at that time was a constitutional crisis between the president and Congress, a very serious matter. The uh, Nixon was impounding congressional uh, uh, appropriations, not spending them. That's happened with every president, but no one ever did it to the degree to Nixon did it. And Congress was getting mad. Well, this was cooking up and it was going to be a very big thing, but somehow it didn't catch on then. No one knew what I was talking about. It, it hadn't developed enough yet, and I tried to make a big thing of it. Uh, other questions, I don't know why they didn't. This was one of those issues bigger inside the Washington Beltway than out of it. Yeah, that's right. Then the the I asked about Vietnam, and uh, I said, uh, we, uh, Congress has now withdrawn the Tonkin Resolution. What justification legally do we have for being there? And he gave me a spiel about how one must be kind to one's allies. And I said, yes, sir, but I'll repeat the question. What is the legal basis for our being there? And he gave me another one. I said, third time, I said, sir, I still want the question answered. And he gave me a third spiel. And uh, he didn't answer it, so I abandoned it. Because <clears throat> at that point, you figure he knows and you know and the audience knows he isn't going to answer <laughs> Yeah. It. And the, the week later, I met Colson at the Marine Barracks here for a show. 
And Colson said, you've caused me more trouble than the whole press together. I said, I did? How? He said, well, one minute after you people finished your broadcast, it was in, uh, in the White House. He was on the phone to me at home, and he said, what the hell is the legal basis for our being in Vietnam? <laughs> I said, well, you should have answers for that. So they got an answer and gave it to him <laughs> in writing. Another reporter who had a uh, who did a great job of covering President Nixon and was fair and balanced, and I always enjoyed his show, was Nightline's host, Ted Koppel. And we have an interview here where Ted Koppel talks about um, dealing with President Nixon and covering him in 1968. Uh, I covered Richard Nixon for much of the presidential campaign in 1968. Um, and I sort of got my first hint about what kind of a campaigner uh, he was. Because I had just read Teddy White's book, and indeed I, I had it with me, his famous book, The Making of the Presidency, or The Making of the President, 1960, which of course was when Nixon ran for um, president against uh, Jack Kennedy and was defeated. Um, and because I had the book with me and was reading it while we were on the campaign, something struck me that would not otherwise have struck me. We were, we were campaigning somewhere outside Detroit, Michigan. And uh, the, everything about the Nixon campaign, especially in 68, was rigidly organized, to the point that uh, it was as close to heaven for the press as you can get. Uh, our bags would always be picked up in the morning from outside our rooms. They would always be standing in front of our rooms uh, when we got to the next place that night. There was always good food on the plane or on the bus. Uh, Nixon took every weekend off in Florida and stayed with his old friend B.B. Rebozo, which meant that we had the weekend off in Florida, uh, and that was good. Um, and uh, you, you didn't expect anything unexpected from the Nixon campaign. Everything was rigidly programmed. So it was really curious on this, on this one morning as we were driving outside Detroit that Nixon's motorcade stopped. And it stopped in front of a school for the deaf. And a number of people from the school for the deaf came out, gathered around Nixon who was standing on the hood of his car. Uh, and as stupid as it sounds, he had a bullhorn uh, with, with which he told these deaf youngsters that he had had an aunt who was deaf and that he had always been very much impressed by her and he spoke about this aunt and that it was the memory of the aunt that caused him when he saw the sign for the school to order his motorcade to come to a stop. And he just wanted to talk to them for a few minutes uh, to tell them what a wonderful woman his aunt had been and how he was sure that they would all turn into wonderful men and women too and lead useful and productive lives. And with that, he handed the bullhorn to an aide, got back in the car, and we started rolling again. And I thought, geez, that sounds familiar. And I pull out my, my 1960 campaign book by Teddy White, and sure enough, he had stopped in front of the same damn school for the deaf and given them verbatim the same little speech, unrehearsed, unprepared, 
and so that, of course, was the, the essence of my story that night. But Nixon was a very, very bright man who simply could not handle uh, anything ad-lib, small talk. He was very poor at small talk. He had come on the program long after his presidency. He came on Nightline uh, after Brezhnev, Leonid Brezhnev, um, who had been the Secretary General of the Soviet Communist Party after he died. And we'd had a couple, two or three ex-presidents, ex-secretaries of state on the program. The program went very late, and I didn't get home until about four in the morning. Uh, went to bed. My wife is an attorney. She was off when the phone rang the next morning. She was already at work. The kids were at school, but it was about quarter to eight. And I hear this very familiar voice on the phone saying, Hold, Ted, President Nixon here. And I said, uh, good morning, Mr. President. What can I do for you? And the first words out of his mouth were, I didn't realize you got up this early. And the first thought that goes through my head is, well, why are you calling me, you numbskull, if you didn't think that I got up this early? But uh, that was just sort of quintessential Nixon, that um, as smart as he was, as brilliantly as he could as he could expostulate on foreign policy, domestic policy. A man with a brilliant memory knew the name of not just every county chairman, Republican county chairman, but every Republican county chairman's wife and probably all of their kids. Really a smart guy, but couldn't handle small talk. And it just made him uncomfortable to be around because unless you got right into the interview with him, or asked him immediately what you wanted to know. If you were trying to make a little bit of small talk, you were going nowhere. One of the most legendary reporters of modern times who is as famous for his hard-hitting, tough style as anybody was 60 Minutes reporter Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace and Richard Nixon were friends. And this, I think, is a very enlightening uh, interview where Mike Wallace talks about that relationship. Richard Nixon. The, the, the conventional wisdom about Richard Nixon was that he was Tricky Dick and that you, could, that you couldn't trust him and that he, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, let's find out. And he understood something with me and we became friends. And when I say friends, I don't mean close friends, but he figured maybe this guy, Wallace, had a different take on him, and he was going to educate me. And you know something? He did. Because he was a very wise man, a very thoughtful man, and I liked him, and he liked me. We hit it off. He uh, he wasn't crazy about the press, and vice versa. And so he began my education. And the more I learned, the more I was anxious to, to get in there with the, with the heavyweights. Come on. The dream, of course, for a local reporter at that time, a local anchor, local interviewer, the dream was to go to work for the Mother Church. What's that? 
CBS News. CBS News. <clears throat> Cronkite. Severide. Right. Winston Burdett. The Cal Brothers. Uh, Charles Collingwood. I mean, right. that was the Mother Church. If you could get a job at CBS News back in those days. <laughs> and you fell in clover because you're in New York as a general assignment uh, Correct. CBS News correspondent, and Richard Nixon lives in New York. Mm-hmm. So you're not the Washington Press Corps, you're something else. Correct. So it works for both of you in a funny way. Uh, it did. I'm not, I'll never forget the time that I was ushered in to see Richard Nixon up in Maine or someplace in New England with all the uh, heavyweight reporters. Who looked... Who the Dickens is this, and why is Richard Nixon paying attention to him? Because they were not getting in the kind of attention from Richard Nixon that they wanted. My friends and colleagues at CBS, I was at CBS from 63 on, I tried to persuade them. I really did. That I, look, this is an interesting man. He's an educated man. He's been through hard times. He, you're going to be hearing more. And they thought I was... A patsy. I mean, I was a Nixon patsy. And they looked down their noses at this young reporter who basically saying doesn't know his ass from third base and uh, turned out I was right. Wow. And then at some point, uh, late in 68, I guess, you are actually asked if you would be interested in working in the White House mm-hmm. in communications office or as press secretary. And you are intrigued with that offer, and at the same time, there's a new TV show starting up. Called 60 Minutes. Called 60 Minutes. I don't don't even know if it was called 60 Minutes back then. But I remember very well conversation with Nixon at the convention. And uh, he says, well, I'll see you out in California. He's about to launch his campaign. I'll see you out in California, Mike. I said, oh, no, no. Mr. Nixon, I'm going to, uh, I have an opportunity, I forget exactly what the hell I told him. He looked at me like I had lost my mind. He said, listen, Mike, we're going to be taking some great trips. And I thought to myself, what in the world is this man talking about? Well, he took some extraordinary trips. China, yeah. That's exactly right. Wow. Uh, so you flirt with the idea. You don't flirt with it, but you imagine what it would have been like. Can you imagine if you had taken the job as press secretary? Uh, to Richard Nixon? Yeah. <laughs> what happened to Ron Ziegler? Finally, that brings me to probably one of my favorite reporters personally, uh, Barbara Walters, who, had, who, who did interview Nixon in his first televised network interview live on 2020. And uh, she talks about that here. But Barbara Walters was very fair in her dealings with President Nixon. She asked some hard questions. She said some tough stuff, but by and large, she went out of her way to try to humanize him and stay away from, from the piling on and attacking him as as you saw the Washington Post, for example, that like they did. Uh, she tried to be what a real reporter is supposed to be, fair and balanced. I remember doing a live interview with Richard Nixon. This was when I was at ABC. It was many years later, and it was after Watergate. And 
it was the first live interview that he had done and the first network interview that he had done after having left office, after being forced out of office. He had done one uh, interview earlier with David Frost, but it was an interview that he was paid to do and, and it was edited, and therefore it wasn't the same. And I started out asking him foreign policy questions. What does he think about this, about that? And he was superb, because he always was in foreign policy. Two things happened. One, he perspired tremendously. And I realized when I'd heard about his early debates uh, with Jack Kennedy, the early debates for the presidency, and one of the reasons this was early television, uh, black and white, I believe, that they said that, uh, that Nixon uh, lost was that he perspired so and he wasn't wearing the right makeup. Well, he had the kind of, some people do perspire, you know, and when I do interviews, I give them a piece of Kleenex and say, now blot yourself down. Okay. In the middle of that interview, I decided that I would then try to give him some questions that would, that would have some humanity because he had been so reviled. And so I asked him what it was that got him through all those difficult times. And he said, uh, because I thought he'd say, my wife or my faith. And he said, why do you have to ask me these questions, Barbara? Uh, why don't you ask the serious things? And I said, well, Mr. Nixon, I, I think people really do want to know these things about you. Well, no, they're not. Um, let's get back to the important questions. You know, Mr. Nixon, again and again, when people have written books about you, people who worked for you, people who were close to you in one way or another, they say that you are cold, remote, and that they were unable to reach you. Why do you think this is? Or do you think this is an apt description? Why are you interviewing me then? Why am I interviewing? Yeah. No, I'm not. Ta I'm not talking about. I don't know you very well. I'm not talking about whether I find you cold or remote. I'm talking about even people like like uh, Henry Kissinger, who knows you very mm -hmm. well. Talk about this remoteness, this mm -hmm. inability to reach you. I like Henry very much. Let us go on. In those days. Why don't we get serious? Well, because I think people are still, I am serious, people are interested in you, people are still serious. trying to understand you, I'm sorry you find it, <laughs> that you find uh, these questions unserious. Uh, <laughs> we have a different idea, perhaps, of what serious is, but let me oh, go no, on. no, I'm not objecting to the questions, you know. I am very serious. Not at all. In those early days after Watergate, I don't know whether you'll find this serious, but I'm serious about it, were there times when you, when you thought you might go under emotionally? Not at all. You always felt that you were able to handle it. There were not times no. when it was just physically. Physically, I came pretty close to going under, as you may recall. I had this phlebitis in the operation, and uh, I was a bleeder, and uh, it was pretty close. And I thought then I probably wasn't going to make it. There was one morning, but uh, emotionally, never. It's just part of my makeup. So I started to look for my foreign policy questions again, and I couldn't find them. But I had written them myself, so I remembered all of them. And then we went on, and one minute, this is when I'm talking about time, I asked for a one-minute cue before the end of this hour interview. And I said, Mr. Nixon, are you sorry you burnt the tapes? And for the first time, he said, yes, I am. And he had only about 30 seconds to answer, and it was a great um, climax. And I remember that very well because when I stood up, I realized that I had slipped the foreign policy questions under my seat because I didn't want them to mix up with the others, and that's why I couldn't find them. 
in just a few seconds we have left now, and there's almost just time for a yes or no. Are you sorry you didn't burn the tapes? You know, interestingly enough, everybody in Europe that I talked to said, why didn't you burn mm. the tapes? And the answer is, I probably should have. But mainly, I shouldn't have even installed them because Johnson's system was there, I had it taken out, and I shouldn't have ever put them in the but first place. if you place. had it to do all over again, you'd burn them? Yes, I think so, because they were private conversations subject to misinterpretation, as we have all seen. Thank you for being with us, Mr. Nixon. Some uh, scholars have suggested that that adversarial relationship that you talked about had uh, actually uh, become destructive in some instances. Well, let me, let me be quite candid on that. Uh, uh, members of the press, whether the writing press or the uh, television press, don't win prizes uh, by programs uh, or by articles or by books which are supportive or positive about the people they're writing about. I mean, you win prizes by being against rather than before. Well, is that good? It's not good. It's not good. I think a lot of the responsibility there lies with the editors rather than with the reporters. If the editors would be a little bit more responsible, uh, maybe we would get more honest and more objective reporting. I don't believe, incidentally, that you should have a cozy relationship between a president or a congressman and a reporter. Uh, it should be arm's length. It should be adversarial, because uh, otherwise uh, you're just going to have uh, people that are going to pander to you. But on the other hand, it shouldn't be so adversarial uh, that, who, that the president or the congressman and so forth is always on guard and figures, well, they're out to get me, and so I'm going to therefore uh, uh, not tell them what I really think. In a world as complicated, difficult, and dangerous as we've got, should a president have some power to control the media? Should there be any uh, restraint, in other words, on this huge thing called the media? There, there probably should be, but I wouldn't be for it. I think once you start down that road, it's a very dangerous road. Uh, as irresponsible as the press is at times, and I believe it is, uh, and the media is at times, uh, it's far better not to have that kind of control. Thank <laughs> you.